turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at only four verses here. Verses 1 through 4. Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. And this is going to set the stage for uh, verses 5 through, I think, 23, which is an exposition of, of that difficult passage in well, difficult in some sense, of Deuteronomy chapter 30, but that will have to wait until uh, next time. But this is going to kind of get at, there's a, there's a certain logic here in one through four that serves as the basis for the exposition of Deuteronomy 30. So in other words, he interprets, he interprets Deuteronomy 30 through this lens that he's kind of setting up here in verses one through four. And um, pay close attention to this because it, it, it really, I think, is it opens up the rest of the scripture, especially Paul. So it opens up Paul and it takes us into, I think, a, a way of looking at Paul's thought that's not simply reformational, but it's, it's really, it's a very Jewish way of looking at things. And it's scriptural, and it's deeply scriptural. It's not just biblical in the sense that it kind of conforms to certain certain themes or whatever, but it is it's deeply biblical in the sense that it's basically an exposition of, of the scriptures, and and then looking at it through what's happened uh, through what's happened with um, with Jesus. And so let's um, let's begin by praying, and and then we'll jump into. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for understanding that comes through uh, through what Jesus has done and through the, the spirit that has been outpoured. We pray, Father, you would continue to do that with us, that you would do it again and afresh today, that uh, we would all hear and understand uh, the scriptures better and then understand ourselves within its uh, within its its scope father we thank you for uh this um this passage and we just uh, we just pray you would you would pour out your spirit today in jesus name amen brethren the desire of my heart and prayer to god for israel is for their salvation for i bear witness about them that they have a zeal for god but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own righteousness. They didn't submit themselves to the righteousness of God. For the Messiah is the goal of the law unto righteousness to all who believe. There are a few things that we have to get at, to look at about this passage that will make Paul's argument fitting and understandable. And they relate mostly to terminology. First, there is a word used in the current passage that we're all familiar with. It's our Christian jargon that we, that we hear about all the time, but it's a difficult word to define, and that is the word righteousness. It's especially difficult when we are in many ways distant, both temporally and socially, from the first century, from Judaism. But define it we must if we're, to ever, if we're ever to understand what Paul is saying. 
the word righteousness. It is sometimes used as part of a phrase, the righteousness of God. And sometimes it is not a part of that phrase. And in this current passage, Paul is going to use it in both ways. He's going to use it alone and in that very phrase, the righteousness of God. And herein lies the problem. It doesn't mean the same thing when it is used in the phrase, the righteousness of God, as it does when it is used alone, as in our current passage. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own. That clearly cannot mean the same thing as the righteousness of God. It is a related meaning in that they are both covenantal uses, but there's enough distinction to a distinction that we must define the uses before we go on. One is God's own righteousness, and the other is something that Paul's kinsmen sought and were unable to obtain. We have already looked at the phrase, the righteousness of God at some length earlier in Romans, especially in chapter one, but it's easy to let that meaning slip for various reasons. Remember how at the beginning of the book, Paul says that in the good news, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And those who are righteous, he says, are those who believe in the Messiah, as it is written, the righteous, the just shall live by faith. There's much that we could bring in here, but let's focus again on what Paul is getting at in that phrase, the righteousness of God, and how that understanding will help us here in this passage. When Paul looks at the events of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, he understands that the good news is not simply some detached knowledge or truth to which we must give assent or some kind of new religious system of morality to which we must subscribe and obey. He understands these events to be bringing Israel's history and ultimately the history of the whole world and even the history of God in some sense to a crescendo, a goal, a climax. The new world has burst onto the scene in and through Jesus's work and is now being newly born in those who believe in Jesus. Resurrection, new creation, through the new exodus, which is in Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Israel, has burst onto the scene. Who has established his reign over all the world, where he reigns as Lord in spite of the purported worldwide reign of Caesar, who is simply a parody of Jesus's reign? He is not simply making some kind of philosophical argument but a necessarily historical argument about what God has done in the world through Israel and then ultimately through the Messiah, Israel's representative, for the sake of the world. And the events of Jesus, his death and resurrection, have brought to a climax God's very own purposes, his promises as revealed in the scriptures. This process of God's bringing Israel and the world to this climactic moment through the events concerning Jesus and the faithful and wise way by which he did it, his making of promises and fulfilling them can be and is referred to as the righteousness of God. The process of God's bringing Israel and the world to this climactic moment through the events concerning Jesus is called 
the righteousness of God. In other words, when God is said to be faithful to do what he said he, he was going to do, that is his righteousness. God has acted in and through Jesus faithfully to bring the story of Israel, of Israel's scriptures, to bear witness to, the, to his promises, to a climax, to a fulfillment. And Jesus himself was faithful to God's purposes in himself. As our current text will say, the Messiah then is the goal, the telos, the end, it says, the climax of the Torah. For Paul, this fulfillment is not simply that Jesus, detached from scriptural history, did something that can then be passed on to other humans. No, it is a matter of covenant fulfillment. We must understand covenant if we are to understand Paul, especially what is coming after this passage today, 10, 5 through 13, which is an exposition of that great covenantal passage of Deuteronomy 30. The very word covenant often becomes confusing in our minds because there was more than one. It was more than one covenant, right? There was the covenant with Abraham. This covenant was an answer to the problem of Adam. Actually, an answer to the problem of evil as a way to deal with the corruption of his good creation through Adam's sin. And later he made a second covenant with Israel as a people, as an individual people at Mount Sinai. This first covenant with Abraham promised that through him and his descendants, God would in some way create a single family for Abraham and would bless all the nations of the earth. The latter covenant, commonly referred to as the Sinai covenant, also called the Torah, the law, as shorthand, was an additional covenant that God made with Israel alone for certain purposes. And that's very important. With Israel alone, that covenant did not encompass the world. The Abrahamic covenant encompassed the world. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God made this covenant with Israel for certain purposes, Paul says, purposes we discussed in Romans 7 and Galatians 3. Paul views it positively, even when he is discussing its negative function within Israel, because it was instrumental in demonstrating to Israel and the world that righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, his covenant faithfulness. Now, this covenant, the Sinai covenant, is a unique covenant in the following way, and this I'm building up to something because this is going to be very helpful in understanding what he's getting at when he criticizes Israel for seeking a righteousness of their own. This very covenant is unique in that its very enactment creates a distinct people, one people, distinct from all other peoples and puts up a wall between that people and the rest of the world. And seemingly, it renders the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, whereby God will create a single family for Abraham, impossible. Follow the logic there. The very enactment of the Sinai covenant creates a distinct people, separate from all other peoples, and puts up a wall between that people and the rest of the world. 
and it renders the fulfillment then, or seemingly renders the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, whereby God will create a single family for Abraham from Israel and the nations, renders that impossible. And to state this is to state the problem we have here with ethnic Israel. If Israel is a distinct and unassimilated people within the wider world, how will God create a single people in fulfillment of the previous covenant that he made with Abraham? This is the problem. It seems as though these two covenants are at odds with one another. That Sinai prevents God's purposes from going forward in the world. And here we are again dealing with the question of the righteousness of God. God's faithfulness and ability to do what he said he would do relating to the covenant with Abraham and in spite of the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. In light of the covenant at Sinai, how can God be faithful to the promise made to Abraham to give him a single family consisting of some of his descendants, physical descendants, and also those from the wider Gentile world? Paul says God has accomplished this through the cross of the Messiah. And that the Torah itself, which itself is sometimes called the law, bears witness to this fulfillment. This is another way of saying, and what Paul is saying in this passage, is that God has renewed the covenant made with Israel and with the descendants of Israel through Jesus. That is, he has renewed the Abrahamic covenant, which promised to create a single family for Abraham in and through Jesus the Messiah. And in some sense, he has bypassed the covenant at Sinai. Now, this is going to prove a big deal for, for those first century Jews. In other words, to use the words that he uses here in this passage and elsewhere to talk about the covenant. He has given those who believe in the Messiah. In other words, when God fulfills these promises, he is being righteous. It's his righteousness that is allowing him to fulfill this and, and the wisdom that he uses to, uh, to accomplish it. Gentiles and a remnant of Jews have found righteousness without pursuing it. Whereas Israel, pursuing righteousness through Torah, did not receive it. This is in chapter 9, 30 and 31, 30 through 31, which we just came from. He says, Gentiles have found, they were not seeking it, but they found righteousness. Whereas Israel, pursuing righteousness through Torah, did not receive it. This word righteousness, we're going to see that he's going to continue to use it in this way in our current passage. It doesn't mean some kind of moral store of value by which they can somehow take Jesus's good works and make them their own, as is often preached and taught. This is especially, especially common within the Reformed tradition to say that Jesus has a store of value, like he, he did it, he can then take that and give that to you. That's not what it refers to in this particular context, and I'm not sure it does anywhere, but... Righteousness in this context means covenant membership, status as a member of the renewed covenant. So remember, if we think of Paul as a, as a covenantal thinker, which he clearly is, that's what he's about to expound in, in verses 5 through 13. 
if we think of him as a as one who sees what happened in Jesus as the culmination of the covenant made with Abraham, then we will understand what he means by righteousness. Righteousness means, in this context, covenant membership, status as a member of the renewed covenant. That's what Paul is claiming here, is that with Jesus, the covenant has been renewed, and Israel has missed out on covenant renewal. It is this covenant membership, status as a member of the renewed covenant, that ethnic Israel, most of them anyway, has rejected because it is through the faithfulness of the Messiah and faith in that Messiah. It is not simply that they were uh, just people who didn't believe in God or who thought they could do good works to obtain resurrection. It's that they didn't submit to God's way of renewing the covenant in the Messiah. And then if we reread chapter 9, 30 through 31 in this way, it makes good sense. Gentiles have found covenant membership and status without pursuing it. Whereas Israel... Pursuing covenant membership and status through Torah did not obtain it. That makes sense. Gentiles have found covenant membership. The renewed covenant is coming to pass among the Gentiles, even though they did not pursue it. Whereas Israel, pursuing covenant membership and status as being in the renewed covenant through the Torah, did not obtain it. Israel sought covenant membership with circumcision and Torah observance as markers of that covenant membership and did not obtain it. What Paul says and has been saying, again, back to his, um, his long historical argument, is that the, markers of, the marker of covenant membership and status is no longer Torah, signified by circumcision, but faith in the Messiah, the true circumcision pointed to all along in Torah. This is the new badge of the people of God. It's not an ethnic marker. In other words, the new badge of Torah of covenant membership is not an ethnic marker. It can't be. Right? It can't be. That's what Sinai did. Sinai gave the, eth uh, the ethnic marker and prescribed circumcision as uh, outward circumcision as the sign that you were in the covenant. That's why Paul is so hard on circumcision in Galatians. Because the marker of the, the new badge of the people of God is not an ethnic marker anymore. It cannot be for it to encompass the whole world. It is the mark of circumcision of the heart by the spirit of the living God. Now, let's work, through, let's work back through this passage, 10, 1 through 4, in accordance with that understanding, with these definitions in place. First, Paul says here in 10, 1, in a similar way that he says, uh, in a similar way that he spoke in 9, 1 through 3, my desire and prayer to God is for Israel's salvation. Earlier he said, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish, he says, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We should be clear here that Paul does not somehow envision a different path for Jews and a different one for Gentiles. Inevitably, when we talk about ethnic Israel, there is muddled thinking about this issue. There is a strange idea that somehow God is dealing with ethnic Israel in a way other than through their Messiah. And it is simply not true. 
How can their scriptures find their climax in Jesus and then God somehow throw all that away and say, I'm going to do something different with you, Israel? How can God's faithful covenant justice find its renewal in Jesus and somehow the people to whom he belonged and revealed himself to first be exempt from submitting to God's way of fulfilling their covenant? How can that be? It can't. It doesn't work and it won't happen apart from the Messiah. Israel needs to be saved, Paul says, and Paul has great anguish that they are not embracing their Messiah and have put themselves outside the people of God. How so? Because what Jesus has done is to renew the covenant he made with their forefathers through their king, Jesus. Of course, Paul says later, they can be grafted back in. And who doesn't want that? But Israel in general remains in exile. Who the people of God are now in light of Jesus has been redefined around Jesus, the Messiah. And if they aren't in the Messiah, they are not God's people. For they are not all Israel, Paul says in Romans 9, 6, who descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be called. That is, he says, as just in case he wasn't clear, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. We must let these clear passages help us interpret the more obscure ones we will see later. Paul states here and elsewhere, mostly in Galatians, that those of ethnic Israel who stand outside the Messiah are cut off from the Messiah and under the curse of the law. Paul then turns to a summary statement in this current in our current passage on why that is. What is it that ethnic Israel is doing in this time that puts her outside of the covenant? Paul says in verses two through three, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, being ignorant of the way God, God being ignorant of God's way of renewing the covenant, God's righteousness. They sought to establish a covenant membership of their own and didn't submit to God's way of renewing the covenant and obtaining covenant membership. So I've, I have just rephrased and redefined what, it, what he's saying in, in verses two and three. Those word, the word righteousness used in a couple of different ways is really packed with meaning. They have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge, being ignorant of God's way of renewing the covenant. That is God's righteousness, which we looked at, the righteousness of God. There's that phrase. That's his way of renewing the covenant faithfully. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own. That is, they sought, they sought to establish covenant membership apart from the Messiah, and they did not submit to God's way of renewing the covenant and obtaining, and obtaining covenant membership. That is the heart of Paul's argument. Beginning in chapter 9, he has argued that election, that is, who belongs to the people of God, has always been a matter of God's gracious choice and was not as straightforward as saying anyone who is born from Abraham and his physical descendants is in the covenant. But it's not that simple, and that's what Paul has been arguing. One can clearly see this when we examine the patriarchs, Paul says, Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau, as recipients of the promise and therefore members of the covenant. 
In light of this, Paul says, God has renewed the covenant promises made to those patriarchs who were there according to promise. The thing that the very thing that that Torah itself looked forward to. And he's done this in and through Jesus. Now, when someone, anyone believes in Jesus, the covenant is renewed with them. That is with Israel. If an Israel, someone from from a Jew believes in Jesus, the covenant is renewed with them. If you're a Gentile, you enter the covenant afresh through the blood of Jesus. The covenant status one obtains is called righteousness. Righteousness then is covenant membership and status as one who is in the covenant. So when think of Genesis 15, when when, uh, Paul quotes this in his argument in, in chapter four of Romans, He talks about Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What is the the very next thing that God does with him when he counts it to him as righteousness? He makes a covenant with him. In other words, Abraham is put into the covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham and it's on the basis of that covenant that he is going to renew it. He's going to give uh, Abraham a descendant, a group of descendants. He's going to make his seed as the sand of the sea. This covenant uh, covenant status one obtains is called righteousness. Now, I should say a word about what Paul uh, says here about zeal, since that too has a bearing on the nuance of his argument. When Paul invokes the word zeal, he is referring to a tradition within Israel's scriptures that refers to actions of the faithful within Israel to take up the cause of Torah and defend it against the pagans, to not let the Gentile world encroach upon the covenantal obligations of Israel. I'll say that again. When Paul invokes the word zeal, which he does here in the in verses two, verse two, and, and then he continues it in three, I bear witness about them that they have a zeal for God. When he invokes the word zeal, he is referring to a tradition within Israel, within her scriptures, that refers to actions of the faithful to take up the cause of Torah and defend it against the pagans, to not let the Gentile world encroach upon the covenantal obligations of Israel, the Sinaitic, uh, the, uh, the obligations of, of the law. Okay. Now, if you are, if you if you read any of the early Jewish literature, you'll see that this is exactly what's going on. If you read about the Maccabean revolt, you'll see that the, the pagan world had sought to impose, uh, they'd sought to do away with with the covenant, the Greek. They sought to do away with uh, with circumcision. So these weird Jews are over here circumcising their children. It's weird and cruel, and, and this stuff must stop. And so they, they tried to do away with it. Sabbaths, these weird people are setting themselves apart. They're, they're uh, not mingling with the rest of us. They won't even eat. They won't even eat with us. These are covenant obligations. And, and for someone in the first century, and the, you should instantly hear Paul in the background here, who takes it upon himself to defend Israel against the, the pagans, that is referred to as zeal because it's, they're doing it in accordance with the traditions surrounding two people, Elijah and Phinehas. Both of these men, when faced with the paganism of the nations encroaching upon the covenant obligation of Israel's Torah, acted with zeal 
even violence, to keep Israel separate from the nations. Elijah himself put at least 450 prophets of Baal to death to rid the land of Baal worship, thereby signifying that the power of Baal uh, over the gods of the land, or the power of God over <laughs> Baal and the gods of the land and the nations had been defeated by the true God. Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eleazar, when the people joined themselves to Baal of Peor, slew a man of Israel and a Midianite woman after the man who had taken, taken this Midianite woman, brought her into the camp of Israel, likely joining himself to her in a more intimate way, thereby stopping the plague that had come upon Israel as a result of their idolatry. He put them to death. He ran a spear through both of them, and he stopped the plague. In the first century, if you were, like the Apostle Paul, if you were exercising zeal, you were engaged in this type of activity, preventing the Gentiles and the pagans from encroaching upon your covenant obligations. This was called zeal. And you can hear Paul in the background, Paul's going around killing Christians, putting them in prison. Why is he doing that? Because he has zeal. He says, some, he says as much in, in, in uh, Galatians, uses those very words. Why? Because he's acting within this, this tradition that says we have to prevent uh, the encroachment upon by the pagans upon our covenant obligations. Like I say, if you read the Jewish literature of that time, that's what they're talking about. Look, these pagans are not going to force us to do anything. We're going to stand firm, and if we need to, we'll defend ourselves with the sword. You can also hear echoes of this when you're, when you're reading the Gospels as well. Right? Paul, uh, Peter, standing there with Jesus, he pulls his sword out, he chops off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus says, put it back, put it back. That's not how the kingdom of God is going to come. But that's what, that's what Peter thought. Let's get this show on the road. It's probably what Judas thought as well. Let's get it done, right? It's time to engage in battle, and you're the Messiah. Let's do it. And so they are ready to fight. That's how they viewed the kingdom of God coming. They're defending against the pagans, against anyone, really. Paul is arguing. So the, now the point is this. The point is not that Elijah and Phinehas uh, were wrong in their actions. Quite the contrary. But Paul is arguing that now something has changed. The fullness of time has come. Knowledge of how God is renewing the covenant has changed. And now God is welcoming all and everyone into the covenant renewed through the Messiah, the representative of Israel. It's not that zeal was a bad thing and that Phinehas and, and Elijah should never have done what they, what they did. It's that now something has changed. In other words, this is an eschatological argument that Paul is engaged in. He is saying, look, what happened in Jesus has changed everything. And with the fulfillment of the covenant, our definition of zeal must also change. They, ethnic Israel, were seeking to maintain the covenant through Torah by means of zeal. That is, they were establishing a righteousness of their own. And they were not submitting to God's righteousness. That is the way that God was renewing the covenant through Jesus, the Messiah. They were seeking to maintain Torah. When the Torah itself pointed to a time of covenant renewal, when the hearts of Israel would be circumcised and the Torah itself mysteriously would be written 
upon the heart. A time when Israel would then be enabled through the Spirit to love the Lord their God with all their heart and to then fulfill her covenant obligations through the Spirit. The time for this had come and now was. And it's this knowledge that Paul refers to that must then inform Israel's understanding of covenant renewal and must be the basis of covenant renewal through their Messiah. Their nationalistic zeal was not in accordance with the knowledge of how God is renewing the covenant. That's what Paul means here. This was not just any kind of nationalism, though, like loving your nation. It was a covenantal nationalism. They would say, we are in the covenant, and the covenant is for us Jews. The Gentiles are the enemies and are to be avoided, condemned, and if needed, we must fight against them with violence. Paul is arguing here an eschatological argument. Something has changed because of which the boundaries of covenant have been expanded to include anyone who believes in Jesus as the Lord and sovereign of the world. God loves you and indeed the world and intended all along to save it. That's what Paul is arguing. And the time for that has now come. What I'm saying about Israel presently doesn't mean that Israel was never to be confirmed in the covenant via Torah and circumcision, with circumcision as being the marker of Torah observance. Indeed, they were prior to the Messiah. But Paul's argument is that something has changed, and the Torah pointed to it all along. That's what he means in verse 4. For the Messiah is the goal, the telos of the law, unto righteousness to all who believe. The word telos, goal, you could perhaps even translate it as climax. It literally means like the end, but it's not the end in the sense that it's that somehow been read. He's the end of the law. Therefore, like we can get rid of that system and we can adopt a new moral system. It's not that at all. It can also be rendered as goal or perhaps climax. Messiah is the climax of the Torah. This verse has been understood or misunderstood as saying that Jesus appeared to end this Jewish religion of works and instead replaced it with a religion of faith. But that is the wrong story. It is wrong in the sense that uh, it is not in accordance with what we've been seeing about this idea of covenant renewal. The Torah itself, specifically in Deuteronomy 30, to which Paul is about to turn, announced that there would come a time when Israel's exile would come to an end and God would renew the covenant with the fathers. It is to this Exodus event, the time of covenant renewal, that the Torah itself had pointed all along as a goal, the end in that sense of goal. This is why he adds the important point, the goal of the Torah for righteousness. That's a very important little um, a little, little, uh, little phrase that he adds to the end. The Messiah is the goal of the law for righteousness, that is, for covenant membership. The terms of the covenant have changed with Jesus. Torah circumcision is no longer the sign of covenant membership. What is? Faith in the Messiah. Faith in the Messiah is the badge now of covenant membership, and all of the nations are called to freely drink from this fountain. Let's close with, with Romans 3, 21 through 26, which itself is getting at the very same thing, but in different words. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 21. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. Um, so, sometime this week, take 10, uh, 10, 1 through 4, and put it up beside uh, 3, 21 through 26, and see if they're not basically saying the same thing, but in different words. But now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is God's faithfulness to his covenant promises being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets were saying the, the climax of the, of the law itself, of the Torah, was the Messiah. Even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption. There's that word for Exodus, which is in Christ Jesus. God has brought about a new Exodus through Jesus, and he has renewed the covenant with Israel, whom God displayed publicly as an atoning sacrifice through his faithfulness by his blood. This was to demonstrate his faithfulness to the covenant promises. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his faithfulness to the covenant promises at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I changed the word um, to, of his, I say, for the demonstration of his, what does your Bible say? Of his righteousness, right? At the present time. So he demonstrates his righteousness, God's righteousness, by putting forth Jesus as the hilasterion, the, the mercy seat, the atoning sacrifice. He does this so that he is viewed as just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then once, once a person has believed, that person then enters into the covenant that was originally made with Abraham and then is renewed in Jesus the Messiah. It is this understanding when we think more like a first century Jew would rather than a 16th century reformer, waiting one who is waiting on the renewal of the covenant, it all makes sense of what Paul is arguing. It also leads us as Gentiles, and this really, so we, we're often really caught up in application. Like how does this apply to me? And you might look at this passage and you say, well, this really doesn't apply to me. I'm not a Jew. It does apply to us in the sense that we are beneficiaries of what has happened in Jesus. And we can be made part of the covenant bypassing ethnic Israel in the sense that we don't have to become a Jew, become circumcised in order to enter into the renewed covenant. What do we do? It's through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So it's a it's a. It's an application that is structural, mentally structural. Right? When, you, when we see what is going on, we begin to understand all of these other passages of Scripture where Paul is talking about covenant renewal and, and the way that Gentiles can not have to become Israel by circumcision to get into the covenant. It leads us, in effect, to praise God for his mercy to us Gentiles who in Jesus can now become sons of Abraham, even sons of God.